So it's five minutes after. Unitarians are late as usual, so way to stay true to form. Uh, I want to welcome all of you to this, to this service. Uh, my name is Brian Mason. I serve as minister at the First Universalist Church over on Grant Street. I think many of you know that. I see a lot of familiar faces. I want to start just briefly by thanking the staff for helping put this together and Cheryl and Randy and other names I'm, I'm probably blanking on at the moment. And then also extending a special thank you to the Marathon County Historical Society that's become a great partner. And they let us use the gardens here at the Cyrus uh, Yawkey House Museum. Um, and it's, it's turned into a wonderful partnership. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for their, for their generosity. And then also I'm really thankful for all of you for showing up this morning. It's nice to see, nice to see your faces. Hope your summer's going well. So uh, last year I started a project of researching the church's history and there's a wonderful um, there's a wonderful collection of archives that have been curated by and large by Judy Stevens who who most of you know and I started at the founding of the church in 1870 and ended in in about 1926 and so what you'll hear this morning is picking up in 1926 and then moving into about 1963, and I'll make sure to reinforce all of that in my essay. So with no further ado, this is part two of I Come From No Mean City, uh, the Universalist Project in Wausau from 1927 until 1963. I'm going to start with a reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in the third verse. This is good and acceptable before our Savior God who intends all human beings to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of truth. So despite the timelessness all religions claim, all religions change. Even orthodox religions, with very rare exception, they alter liturgies and polity in response to changing cultural attitudes and cultural norms. External factors like technology play a role as well. The Protestant Reformation wouldn't have spread as far and quickly if it weren't for the printing press and increasing literate populace. And while it's true that many religious Americans championed social and political causes like the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage, it's also true that cultural events shaped American religion. Social and technological changes often lead to massive theological shifts and sometimes these shifts cause religious movements to split. The story of universalism in America is no different. Universalism, like all religions, are living traditions practiced by people, and people are restless, which guarantees two things, tension and change. In a previous essay, I detailed the Universalist Project in Wausau from its founding in 1870 to 1926. No survey of universalism in America is complete without mentioning the movement's founder, John Murray, an Englishman whose boat ran aground off the coast of New Jersey in 1770. Murray's universalist Christianity literally swept the nation. It sparked religious revivals throughout the colonies. And as the scholar of church history E. Brooks Holifield writes, quote, for more than a century in early colonial America, theologians ruled the realm of ideas, end quote. Christian universalism was part of this ruling realm. Universalism spread west across the early Americas by horseback riding missionaries. 
and townsfolk gathered to hear their take on the gospel under the cover of trees or in a family's home. And they heard something totally new, that God's love is eternal and for everyone. Universalism defied the prevailing Christianity of the, of the day that assured eternal damnation except for an elect few. This idea was so revolutionary that soon universalist churches, publications, colleges, seminaries, and missionaries were everywhere. Today, only one universalist publication remains, and all the colleges and seminaries are closed. The fate of its churches is only somewhat better. In New England, universalist churches are now private residences, and just down the road in Monroe and Stoughton, the universalist churches there are now museums. Churches that have congregations that still gather for worship like Wausau's are traversing a new era of profound change in nearly every aspect of human existence. Formal, uh, formal religious affiliation is shouldered with the burden of negotiating its relevancy in a highly competitive marketplace of ideas. And only time will tell how compellingly religious people end up making their case. But at its core, universalism is an optimistic faith. Traditional universalists understood that the death of Jesus points not just to a Christian truth, but an eternal truth. The power of God's self-giving love, which is a universal sacrificial love found even in the most tragic and surprising places. Further, it is a faith that believes God's love works through people of every religious tradition and no religious tradition. It welcomes unity and diversity and welcomes anyone who, in the language of Hebrews, believes we should live as though we are entertaining angels unawares. Universalism leaves the door open to people who want to practice a relational faith of service, a cosmic faith of wonder, and a traditional faith of devotion. Diversity of thought amongst the membership is not an exception. It is the rule. Wausau's Universalist Church is unique and that for a time Sundays became a who's who of Wausau, the Yawkeys, whose garden you're sitting in right now, the Mathies, the Woodsons, whose house is across the street, the Ulrichs, the Schofields, the Reeds, are just a few of the names and personalities that built Wausau's industries, established its museums, wrote state and federal laws, helped organize the country club, and decide state Supreme Court cases. Many of Wausau's most iconic residents spent their Sundays in the pews at Wausau's Universalist Church. And it is their era that is the focus of this essay. In the 36 years spanning 1927 to 1963, Wausau's Universalist Church would be served by three extraordinary pastors who helped make those years some of the church's finest. As unique and talented as those pastors were, they were supported by an equally, if not more, talented congregation. Together, they would navigate the Great Depression, the Second World War, the desegregation of America's schools, and the Space Age. In those decades, the world would be introduced to the invention of hearing aids, frozen food, television, scotch tape, the electron microscope, suntan lotion, the ballpoint pen, photocopiers, the helicopter, nuclear reactors and bombs, napalm, the microwave oven, contraception, credit cards, satellites, seat belts, and cardiac pacemakers. In other words, they saw the dawning of a new world. 
This essay ends in 1963, two years after Wausau's Universalists voted, along with 79% of all Universalist churches and 91% of all Unitarian societies to merge the Universalist Church of America, the UCA, with the American Unitarian Association, the AUA, to create the Unitarian Universalist Association, the UUA. Lots of syllables, we like those. So in those years between 1927 and 1963, nearly 650 people would join the church. More than 300 children were baptized into the faith. Hundreds of Wausau's residents would be married in the church and many hundreds more would be laid to rest. Two of the pastors left Wausau to serve as president of the UCA. One of them, the Reverend Carlton Fisher, would be the UCA's last president before the merger. Another pastor, the, the Reverend Brainerd Givens, left Wausau and served three years as president before resigning to spend the rest of his life lamenting what the moment, or rather the movement, should have been. The first pastor we'll meet, the Reverend Noble McLaughlin, left the Universalist pulpit in Monroe to take over the pastorate in Wausau, which he helped establish as one of the most prominent Universalist churches in the country a legacy that endured until the merger when, as many Universalists feared, the Unitarians overshadowed the Universalist legacy, a source of pain for some even today. These pastors slowly transitioned the theology of the church from historic Universalist Christianity of John Murray to the Unitarian theology of Hosea Ballou, and finally to a universal religion that celebrated science and wisdom devoid of supernatural entities. In the early 20th century, these shifts were ridiculed and debated and defended locally in the pages of the Wausau Daily Herald Record and Pilot, on television and radio, and nationally in publications like The Christian Leader. In 1949, one of the ministers preached a sermon that called for a total divorce from Christianity, replacing St. Paul's armor of God with the armor of science, reason, and non-divine wisdom. He called it the next evolutionary phase of religiosity, and many went along cheerfully while others left or raged or mourned. This evolution, novel in its day, was covered in the likes of Time magazine that ran news of the radical universalist under the headline, Religion, Creeds for the Creedless. This vision, which can be summarized using the modern phrase secular humanism, grew in prominence and was preached from universalist and Unitarian pulpits and endures in churches today. Secular humanism is, of course, an elastic term, but in the simplest sense, it is a naturalist philosophy with a cosmic outlook rooted in science, accompanied by a consequentialist ethical system. This worldview, edgy and exciting in the 1950s and 60s, is just one of the many options on the worldview smorgasbord anyone with an internet connection can peruse like a lunch crowd at Golden Corral. It's tempting to say that the Universalist and Unitarians led America's theological revolution, but I'd caution anyone from drawing that conclusion. Americans, like all people, can't help but be on the move, and we have St. Augustine to thank for that insight. Besides, beyond the walls of Unitarian and Universalist churches, you would have observed a society trending towards secularism at the exact same time. Knowing that makes it tempting to say universalism just went along with the crowd, but that option fails to acknowledge the nuance of what really happened and what didn't.
It also withholds due justice to universalist churches like Wausau's, or at least I hope like Wausau's, that proudly live on the threshold of belief and unbelief, knowing that we need not think alike to love alike, and that the human project we call church is a worthwhile one, which brings us to our topic at hand. To appreciate the story of universalism in Wausau from 1927 to 1963, you need to put yourself in the mind of its residents then. So travel back in time with me. In 1927, Ford's assembly line produced the last Model T, which in 1908 had made car tra travel available to middle-class Americans. People around the world in 1927 were eagerly awaiting the morning of May 20th, when Charles Lindbergh took off from a Paris airport in a, in a monoplane he had named the Spirit of St. Louis. And then 33 hours, 30 minutes, and 3,610 miles around the world later, he landed at La, La Beaujour Field near Paris, where a crowd of 100,000 people gathered to celebrate the first flight around the world. Calvin Coolidge called Lindbergh, quote, our messenger of peace and goodwill, who has broken down another barrier of time and space. Prohibition was still in effect, and just down the road in Chicago against their named Al Capone, but better known as Scarface, was earning $60 million a year, more than a billion dollars in today's terms, running bootleg booze operations and speakeasies. In 1927, Americans pledged allegiance to a flag with 48 stars. Alaska and Hawaii wouldn't be granted statehood for another 22 years. Across the Atlantic, following the devastation of World War I, the European continent was adjusting to the dissolution of the Austria-Hungary and Ottoman empires. And high above the rubble of the First World War in the mountain village of Berchgaden in the German state of Bavaria, a failed artist and architect named Adolf Hitler had his public speaking ban lifted by the Bavarian government. Now free, he traveled the countryside in a brand new Mercedes Benz with his new best friend, the socially awkward five foot tall Joseph Goebbels, who just finished his PhD in literature. That spring, Goebbels and Hitler would drive their Mercedes to Berlin, where he gave a speech in front of 5,000 supporters. And just weeks later, on May 20th, Goebbels would win the Nazis a seat on the German legislature. By 1927, in Marathon County, Wisconsin, there were more than 2,200 miles of paved roads to accommodate the growing number of citizens who traded horse and carriage for cars and trucks. In Wausau, Ben and Judd Alexander were putting the final touches on the city's very first airport on the southeast side of town, and construction on the Grand Theater was finally finished, with open, which opened with the showing of the silent film Dress Parade. Outside of town, farmers grew apples, plums, and strawberries nestled between poultry and dairy farms. And floating down the Wisconsin River were acres of lumber. And in the train cars operated by the Wisconsin Valley Railroad, tons of quartz, iron, and paper were sent south to Chicago and Milwaukee and west to St. Paul. Since the founding of Wausau's Universalist Church in 1870, Wausau had grown from a town of a little more than 1,000 people to a proper American city with more than 20,000 residents. In 1927, Wausau's Universalists were still mourning the tragic death of their pastor, Dr. William Taylor. And so sensitive to their plight on May 1st, 1927, Dr. John Lowe, the general and superintendent of the UCA, 
traveled to Wausau to preside at Sunday's worship service. Joining him was Dr. Joseph Tilden, president of the now-closed Universalist Lombard College in Galesburg, Illinois. Dr. Lowe and Drs. Tilden wanted to personally come and comfort Wausau's grieving Universalists. They also knew the success of the church in Wausau was vital to the movement overall, not just because they had financial capital, but because Wausau's Universalist church had social capital too. As the congregation started talking about their next pastor, one name kept coming up. Down the road in Monroe, Wisconsin, a 45-year-old Baltimore native named Noble McLaughlin was pastoring the First Universalist Church where he'd been for the last 17 years. McLaughlin was born with a rare heart condition that kept him out of school until 10. He'd manage only six years of schooling when his father would die, leaving his mother of two no choice but to pull her only son out of school in order to work so she could tend to her newborn daughter. McLaughlin, a mostly uneducated 16-year-old, found work as a clerk at a fertilizer manufacturer called Swift & Company. Despite his infirmities, and even after a hard day's work, McLaughlin would study constantly. He'd been nursing a call to the ministry for nearly six years. What McLaughlin had done is he had personally wrote the president of St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, and in his letter he literally begged for a chance to study at the university's seminary. President Gunnison responded to McLaughlin personally and said that if McLaughlin could maintain a perfect GPA, he'd permit him to study at no cost with the caveat that after graduation, he'd stay in Canton for a year working for free at the university. With his mother and his sister Ethel's blessing, McLaughlin left Baltimore for Canton with nothing aside from a Bible and $100. The year was 1903. McLaughlin took his Bachelor of Divinity degree in 1906, making him a proud member of that year's graduating class of four. True to his word, McLaughlin stayed in Canton for a year in service to the university before accepting a call in 1907 to serve the now defunct Universalist Church in Stoughton, Wisconsin. And so while at Stoughton, McLaughlin was reunited with his mother and sister who still relied on him for financial security. McLaughlin would further his education at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he specialized in vocal performance. McLaughlin was a natural tenor with an enviable mop of hair and piercing blue eyes. It didn't take long for him to draw the attention of Stoughton's most eligible bachelorette, Nellie Nell Townsend. And so after a brief courtship, they married on Nell's mother's front yard on South Page Street in downtown Stoughton. And after the wedding, a friend chauffeured them in the back of a brand new Ford Model A to Edgerton, where Lake Koshkonong empties into the Rock River. They honeymooned on the river's banks and christened a marriage that lasted 34 years until death bid them part. The year was 1911, the same year McLaughlin left Stoughton to pastor the Universalist Church in Monroe, where he would stay quite happily until the morning of May 8th, 1927 when a contingent of the trustees from the Universalist Church of Wausau showed up unannounced on his doorstep and said, would you like to take over the pastorate at Wisconsin's finest Universalist Church? McLaughlin said no. Three days later, another meeting was held so that the traveling trustees could tell their counterparts and the Ladies' Aid Society of Wausau, the original matriarchs of the church, that they were much pleased with McLaughlin's personality, but unfortunately, 
He said no. Cyrus Yawkey refused to accept no for an answer, and he called for a special session very late into the evening on May 25, 1927. Yawkey and his wife Alice joined the church in 1914. By 1927, they were a constant presence in nearly every aspect of the church. Yawkey hand-selected three trustees who traveled back to Monroe to try and convince McLaughlin to say yes. McLaughlin never would say what changed his mind, but shortly after the board's second attempt, the Monroe Evening Times ran an article that detailed McLaughlin's upcoming around-the-world vacation alongside news of his resignation from Monroe's Universalist Church. And on June 20th, 1927, minutes from Wausau's trustees meeting include a letter from McLaughlin expressing his profound excitement at coming to Wausau after returning from his trip. The no, followed by the return of a hand-picked delegation, followed by, followed by McLaughlin's announcement detailing world travels and move to Wausau could just be a coincidence. But I bet rumors flew that the well-hilled universalist in Wausau lured the man with the trip of a lifetime. Regardless of what happened, McLaughlin did say yes to Wausau, and he and Nell did travel the world in the summer of 1927. The board's entry that included news of McLaughlin's arrival closes with a motion allowing the Yawkeys to redecorate and refurnish the parsonage at no cost to the congregation for the third time, a kindness they loved doing. The motion carried unanimously. And that summer, the Yawkeys furnished the parsonage with the finest furniture any Wisconsin clergyman had ever seen. Between the pastorates in Monroe and Wausau, the McLaughlins traveled to New York, where they sailed aboard the steamship Homeric the entire length of the St. Lawrence River to Toronto, then on to Montreal, where they boarded the SS Albertic that landed in Liverpool before a six-week tour of London, Scotland, France, Egypt, Constantinople, Greece, Italy, and finally the Holy Land. While in Scotland, McLaughlin preached at the Stenhousemere Church in Falkirk on the occasion of the congregation's 60th anniversary. The Stenhousemere Church was the very first missionary venture of the Universalist Church of America. And less than two years after the McLaughlins visited the Universalist in Scotland, the church was deemed by the denomination, quote, quite hopeless to continue and was promptly closed. The Universalist project in Scotland that started with the first foreign missionary a woman named Carolyn Sewell was formally over. I linger here to draw distinction between the Universalist and the Unitarians. First, to note that the Unitarians were far less zealous in terms of self-promotion. And secondly, to note the early inclusion of women in ministry, which the Unitarians were not nearly as quick to allow as the Universalists. So McLaughlin's pastorate in Wausau began in fall 1927 shortly after he and Nell returned from their travels. McLaughlin's tender character is evident in his first meeting with the board. On October 2nd, at the unfriendly hour of eight o'clock that evening, the contract ink was still drying, and the board decided to tell McLaughlin all of the church's problems, the tidbits commonly glossed over when you're trying to woo your top candidate. But even after all the bad news, which mostly had to do with money, McLaughlin, in true universalist fashion, remained optimistic, and he assured that improvement was indeed possible. 
In response to his assurances, the board promised to finally do a better job fundraising. These kinds of interactions between McLaughlin and the leadership are common. Him, the ever-kind pastor, and the trustees, the restless administrators. A reporter from Wausau's Daily Record, Harold, sat for McLaughlin's first Sunday in the pulpit, which he wrote about at length. The article states McLaughlin made good use of his first sermon by focusing on, quote, the Christian ideals of universalism. The reporter further noted, quote, Mr. McLaughlin makes a very good impression. His delivery is unusually fine, his voice pleasant and appealing, his choice of language is attractive, which is as while his clear statement on the tenets of the Universalist Church appeared to be approved by the members present that Sunday, end quote. McLaughlin began his sermon with this, quote, I believe that universalism is the greatest adventure in religion the world has ever known, for it is an everlasting personal quest for truth, liberal and broad, and is based on the principles and teachings of the greatest personality the world has ever known, Jesus Christ, who said, do unto others what ye would have them do unto you, and who cited the greatest commandments, love of God and love of your fellow man as the requisites of his disciples, end quote. Later, McLaughlin laid out his ecclesiology saying, quote, the church first stands for religion, that something in the world which someone has called the life of God and the soul of man. Religion is a necessity in every person's life and life is imperfect without religion, end quote. And about preaching, McLaughlin said, quote, in my sermons, I will not assume ever to always be right, but will give my own ideas and opinions, leaving each one to believe all or none, preaching in love and tolerance and sincerity, end quote. In the minds of universalists then, the thought of a church unmoored from the teachings of Jesus Christ would have been quite unconscionable. They believed, as Yawkey once noted in a board meeting, that humankind is imperfect and no material or intellectual resource can ever fully satisfy, meaning that within us all is a lack, a void only God can fill. What made the Universalists unique was that they didn't ask you to profess any creed. The Bible was yours to interpret in communion with your fellows. You didn't even have to believe like McLaughlin or Yawkey. But you did have to believe in the church's mission, which was given by Jesus Christ, who said, heal the sick, tend to the orphan, care for the widow, and walk humbly with your God. I linger here because by the end of McLaughlin's life, even he would move towards a Unitarian theology regarding God and Jesus. Classic Unitarian theology believes in the God of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Testament, but it resists any notion that Jesus was anything more than a prophet like Moses, or John the Baptist. And McLaughlin wasn't unique here. This theological change was happening throughout universalism, especially with the rising number of students emerging from seminary, eager to share their new ideas with any church that would pay them. Theological shifts like McLaughlin slowly opened the door to later shifts in theology that were preached by Gibbons and Fisher in the succeeding decades, which we'll review later. McLaughlin's first years in Wausau were a total success. Church attendance grew, babies were born, the money stabilized, and new people joined. And with his extraordinary tenor voice, McLaughlin wowed audiences throughout Wausau. 
He sang constantly at graduations, rotary club meetings, church suppers, hospitals and sanatoriums, board meetings, church services, birthday parties, and as his uh, niece told me over the phone, he also sang often in the shower. He and his wife developed a ministry at Wausau's hospitals and elsewhere throughout the state visiting orphanages. The trustees did make good on their commitment to fundraise better, and soon they were investing in the Universalist Church's missionary efforts in Japan. In his first annual report to the congregation, McLaughlin joked that he had been spending most of the winter and spring, quote, praying for a killing frost and some rainy Sundays as the new pastor. The reason why he was pray praying for killing frost and rainy days was because he desperately wanted a weekend off and he was reminding his congregation that he had preached 35 Sundays in a row. Thankfully, the board voted to close the church for the summer, a common practice then, so McLaughlin got the reprieve he was praying for, but he'd have to preach another four Sundays before they gave him a weekend off. McLaughlin's, was, McLaughlin's pastorate was so successful that it drew the attention of the UCA who suggested that he move to the Shoup Memorial Church in Pasadena, California. Shoup's trustees aggressively pursued McLaughlin. They told him that they would guarantee him a starting salary of $4,500 a year, nearly $90,000 today, which was more than double what Wausau was paying him. McLaughlin notified Wausau's board that he was flirting with Pasadena. The board expressed their unwavering confidence in him and asked him very politely to stay. In the end, McLaughlin did stay. The board clearly felt at risk of losing their pastor, and so at the end of 1932, they gave him an annual bonus of $586, a sum worth about $13,000 today. They also dispatched the wise judge, Alexander H. Reed, who personally negotiated a new salary with the beloved pastor. McLaughlin's flirtation with California might have fallen through, but it ultimately resulted in a salary increase. McLaughlin and Wausau's Universalists continued to rise in prominence, growing their footprint with missionary zeal, so much that in 1935, McLaughlin's alma mater awarded him an honorary doctorate. But a high school dropout who clerked in grimy factories, a kid who literally begged to attend college, a man often disabled by a rare heart condition would earn the title doctor absolutely thrilled McLaughlin. The Daily Record Herald ran news of the honor for days on end. And from then on, despite customs that say otherwise, he went by Dr. McLaughlin. A year later, in 1936, the UCA chose Wausau as the site of its national convention. The advertisement for the 1936 convention describes Wausau as, quote, one of Wisconsin's most popular convention cities because of its amazing accommodations. And the Universalist church there, the ad read, was the pride of universalism, a site worthy of pilgrimage for any true believer. As a bonus, the ad noted, members of the Wausau church not only would give you free lodging, they would cook you breakfast as well. Often when history of the merger between the Unitarians and the Universalists is told, it starts in the 1950s when formal talks of merger began. But starting there overlooks the first attempts at merger in 1932, when a group of Unitarians and Universalists formed the Free Church Fellowship that grew in membership and eventually adopted a constitution. 
However, many universalist churches refused to tolerate what they saw as an absence of theology within Unitarianism. Universalists were offended by the Free Church Fellowship's declaration of principles that opened with, quote, we believe that religion is ethical, that ethics is social, and that the church is the organized conscience of society, end quote. Universalists waited to see what the AUA would say to this secular statement, no doubt hoping they'd be as appalled as they were. Unfortunately, the Universalists would have to fume and mourn alone because at the next annual meeting of the Unitarians, they decided to call the Declaration of Principles, quote, an epoch-making event in the struggle for a united liberal fellowship, end quote. Universalists were far less lyrical in their praise and responded to the news of the free fellowship movement by suggesting edits that were sure to include the adjective Christian in absolutely every single opportunity. News of the free fellowship movement arrived in Wausau at the end of 1933. Wausau's trustees were also unimpressed with the secular Unitarians and wanted to go on record as such. And so on October 8, 1933, the board directed McLaughlin to write the UCA's leadership expressing the Wausau congregation's total opposition to the Free Church Fellowship. This decision captures not only the theological stance of the congregation then, it also showcases the trustees' trust in McLaughlin's vision of ministry, a sacred bond that congregations and pastors strive to replicate. And other events, other events that showcase the amazing bond between the Wausau congregation and McLaughlin. His mother-in-law, Ida Imogene Townsend, died in early 1935. And McLaughlin was a devoted, devoted son-in-law. And so for the last three months of Townsend's life, she lived with the McLaughlins up in the parsonage at Wausau. After she died, the McLaughlins called upon, of all people, the members of the congregation who served as pallbearers at Townsend's funeral. Judge Reed, Alexander Schofield, George Reuter, and three others would be chosen to commit Townsend's earthly remains into the tiny Cortland Methodist Cemetery in Columbia County, Wisconsin. And after McLaughlin's own mother died, he called on the very same men to comfort him in his mourning. McLaughlin's scrapbooks are filled with obituaries, news stories, and playbills, anything at all that had to do with members of the congregation he adoringly served. Minutes from the church meetings note that McLaughlin often called for moments of silence to remember the dead. He'd read the names and services. He'd preach, he'd preach on the debt we, the living, owe the memory of the dead. And instances of his tenderness are found in the letters he wrote his wife during his frequent travels in service to the denomination. My dearest wife, they always begin. My heart and flesh long for you. McLaughlin was no saint, and he'd say as much if he were alive today, but he lived his faith even when the cameras weren't rolling. As the Great Depression arrived in Wausau, the church fell on lean times. The board was forced to ask McLaughlin whether he would take a smaller salary. McLaughlin didn't even wait to discuss this with his wife. As the notes indicate, he said yes in the very same meeting. Wausau's Universalist loved McLaughlin, and he loved them. The church struggled throughout the Depression, but they were proud to keep paying their dedicated minister, their secretary, and the organist. But times were tough, and barely enough ice could be afforded for refrigeration or coal for heating. Attendance declined in worship, in winters especially, which was a source of sadness for the sociable McLaughlin. 
often in the depression, the trustees then, Reed, Yawkey, Mathy, Schofield, Woodson, Wilson, Reuter, Atherton, the women and men who served the church faithfully for decades, they divided the church's bills amongst themselves and everyone gave what they could. The sacrificial spirit evident in their leadership was in their minds part of their sacred calling and duty of a church trustee. They gave because God gave. And as the depression faded into memory, McLaughlin and Wausau's Universalist rebounded. He was often called on to give baccalaureate addresses at Wausau Senior High. He frequently spoke on international affairs, Mexico especially, where he worked with denominational leaders to help thaw the tension Mexico had with missionaries at the time. McLaughlin would be in his 14th year at Wausau, the longest pastorate in the church's history, when the heart condition that had plagued him since childhood flared up worse than it ever had. Late on October 22, 1941, the board gathered to hear an update on McLaughlin from a physician they had hired, Ruder, Yawkey, Mrs. Foff, Mr. Traverinus, all the people who'd worked alongside and were ministered to by McLaughlin were present from the update. Dr. Christian and Christensen informed them that McLaughlin would likely never work again. He's slipping, Dr. Christensen said. McLaughlin lay dying in the parsonage just a few rooms away from where the board was meeting in Yawkey Hall. And so between October 22nd and November 30th, McLaughlin's family traveled to Wausau to say goodbye. McLaughlin's beloved niece, Elizabeth, who summered with the McLaughlins, remembered the trips she and her mother took to see her uncle for the last time. She told me that when she walked into McLaughlin's room, he could hardly move, but he managed to sip, sit upright in bed and present her with one last surprise gift. And then he sang for her a song as he had done so many times before. And days later, on November 3rd, McLaughlin died. He was 59. Many area pastors, along with McLaughlin's mentee, presided at the funeral. Universalists from all over the country, Wassa's Rotary Club, local high school teachers and students all gathered to pay their respects to one of the city's finest clergymen. The Daily Record Herald, which followed McLaughlin's ministry closely, published a piece that said, in effect, laying McLaughlin to rest was like laying a part of the soul of the city to rest. The church's trustees served at ushers at his funeral, and Yawkey, Reuter, Schofield, and many of the men whom McLaughlin and his wife chose to carry the casket of their mothers were called upon again to guard their pastor's body to Monroe, where a second funeral was held, and finally to Riverside Cemetery in Stoughton, where they lowered their friend and pastor into the ground in the early afternoon of November 3rd. McLaughlin was a conservative radical who thought the city has perished. He served his congregations faithfully. He defended universalism fiercely, challenging dissenters publicly in the social medias of his day. Over the course of his life, he displayed the spirit of liberal Protestantism by living and evangelizing on behalf of it. In true liberal fashion, his theology evolved, moving from classic Trinitarian Christianity like that of Universalism's founder, John Murray, to the more Unitarian Christianity of Universalism's greatest theologian, Hosea Ballou, who regarded Jesus as an exemplar of faithful living and service. Over the course of McLaughlin's ministry in Wausau, he, wel he welcomed 133 families into the church, presided at 116 funerals, conducted 89 baptisms, 
baptisms and officiated 41 weddings. Wausau's Universalists mourned the death of their beloved minister for nearly four months before they turned their attention to finding his replacement. And in keeping with their generous spirit, the trustees voted to give the remainder of McLaughlin's salary to his widow and allow her to live freely in the parsonage until living arrangements could be organized with her family back in Stoughton. And on her last Sunday in Wausau, the church publicly honored her for all her years of faithful service to the congregation. In many respects, McLaughlin's death marks both the end of an era and another era's beginning. And so on February 1942, the trustees began their search for a new minister. Little did they know that the next one would preside during an era of extraordinary change and strife. Universalism was slowly shedding its traditional precepts as pastors started including ideas from Eastern religions, Freudian analysis, and existentialism in their sermons. The next ministry also overlapped with the Second World War, as well as numerous technological innovations that changed how humankind traveled, ate, and waged war. No longer would people travel aboard steamships to Europe like the McLaughlins did less than 20 years earlier. By 1942, Yawkey, who had been a mainstay at the church, on the church's board, was dealing with frequent illness. Judge Reed was dead. The church's matriarch, Mary Schofield, had been dead for nearly 50 years. Most of the Civil War veterans that occupied the pulpit and pews in the church's early years were all dead. All the veterans alive that would have fought in the First World War, and soon many of the women and men would be serving in the Second. Aside from George Reuter, the leadership of the board had been handed over to the next generation, many of whom had never met the original leaders, but they took their responsibilities seriously and requested a list of capable ministers from the UCA who sent them the name of Brainerd F. Gibbons. Gibbons had recently graduated from the seminary at St. Lawrence after selling his partnership in a law practice once shared with Charles Evan Hughes, the eventual governor of New York, secretary of state, associate, and finally chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Gibbons was born in Brooklyn and educated in New York City's finest institutions before rising to partner at the Manhattan law firm. By the time he was 40, he felt called to something else. He later said in an interview with Time Magazine that the reason he sold his law practice to study for the ministry because he wanted, quote, to do something for society rather than just make money out of its difficulties, end quote. So Gibbons sold his law partnership and moved to Canton for seminary, the same place McLaughlin graduated from 35 years earlier. Upon graduation, Gibbons took a short-term ministry at the now-closed Church of the Good Shepherd, a universalist church in Lawrence, Massachusetts, congregations like pastors have unique characteristics. For a decade and a half, Wausau's universalist had grown accustomed to McLaughlin's gentle demeanor and his earnest faith. And while it cannot be said that Gibbons was McLaughlin's total opposite in terms of character, it also cannot be said that they were at all similar. Assertive, confrontational, driven, administratively focused. Gibbons wasted literally no time telling Wausau's leadership how unorganized and undisciplined he thought they were. He wanted to be on the radio overnight. He wanted better advertising, a better sound system, and a personal secretary. 
Even before Gibbons arrived in Wausau, he was negotiating via letter a higher salary for the church to foot the bill of a covered parking spot for his brand new car and for a new stove and refrigerator to be installed in the parsonage. Clearly, Gibbons' abilities as an attorney came in handy because the trustees gave him everything he asked for, including what in today's terms was a $10,000 salary increase over McLaughlin's, a pastor with three decades more experience than Gibbons. It should be noted that the church has never hired again another former attorney as pastor. <laughs> like McLaughlin, Gibbons thought that universalism was the greatest story ever told. But unlike McLaughlin, Gibbons matriculated seminary right as Adolf van Harnack's historical critical method was de rigueur. Harnack's writing nudged open the door to biblical interpretive methods. Biblical interpretive methods that invited absolute freedom in the study of church history and New Testament. Harnack openly denied the possibility of Jesus' miracles while emphasizing what some regard as practical Christianity in the sense that it calls the faithful to a way of religious living and not to a system of theology to believe in. Gibbons was a devotee of the, of the universalist theologian Hosea Ballou, whom he called, quote, the Lincoln of religion, a metaphor meant to convince you that Ballou was a liberator of human consciousness. Ballou, according to Gibbons, adjusted the old universalist understanding of the Bible as God's divine word to nothing more than, quote, supreme literature, end quote. In a sermon preached in his first years at Wausau, Gibbons said this, quote, it was Ballou who brought an early narrow liberalism to the inclusive truth-seeking rational universalism of today. Though the languages of over a hundred years ago may seem different, the thoughts of Ballou are sound today in harmony with the universe as revealed by modern science. As Ballou said, in effect, we are bound together by love, no differences can separate us, and if we have no love, no agreements can keep us together." End quote. Soul searching within universalism was always present, but the next move was truly unprecedented. What caused the next phase of evolution within universalism and Unitarianism in the latter part of the 20th century is the subject of, I estimate, 10,000 dissertations. Certainly the changes were a result of a globalizing world, a liberalizing society, and an America that would soon enter the Second World War, a war that pulled Gibbons away from his congregation. In a lecture Gibbons gave to, the road, to Wausau's Rotary Club on the contribution of America's Jews and the nation's peacekeeping efforts, he says that he tried to enlist in the Navy shortly after seminary, but he was denied due to his advanced age. However, on March 1st, 1943, Gibbons got a letter notifying him that Uncle Sam had changed his mind and that the United States Navy was desperate for chaplains, even if they were graying around the ears. With Gibbons away, Wausau's Universalists were served by the Reverend Ray Cranmer and Gibbons' wife, Marietta, who stayed in Wausau to oversee some of her husband's ministry. It cannot be overstated how well the church was managed by its members in Gibbons' absence. In addition to Gibbons, 80 members of Wausau's church would go to World War II and 78 would return. The weekly absence of 80 people must have been a harrowing reminder of the cost of war. 
The trustees received word from Gibbons on November 4, 1945, that he'd, that he'd returned to the Naval Air Station in Alameda, California, where he was awaiting discharge. After several months' rest in early 1946, Gibbons returned to Wausau to resume his pastorate. Gibbons' second chapter with Wausau's Universalist would, like churches throughout the nation, see exponential increases in membership. After the Second World War, church membership grew at a faster rate than the American population did, from 57% in 1950 to 63% in not, from 57% 1950 to 63% in 1960. On average, more than half the country was sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. While it's true that American religion in the late 40s and 50s experienced record-setting growth, the nation and the world were ripe with religious conflict. Catholic versus Protestant, high versus low culture, liberal versus evangelical. The American academic and expert on world religions, Robert Elwood, quote, contends that the 50s were the last decade of religious modernism, while the 60s saw the beginning of a postmodern period. It was a time when religion was powerful in American life, partly because people believed they needed it, and there was seemingly nothing to discredit it, end quote. The citizens of Wausau clearly needed religion when they got back from war because the church was soon bursting at the seams. Theologically, Gibbon's articulation of universalism when he arrived in Wausau in 1941 would have been considered liberal, but only somewhat more so than McLaughlin's. They differed mostly in terms of content. McLaughlin's sermons rooted in biblical interpretation, whereas Gibbons used Bible lessons to launch into topics like Jungian mythology or the similarities of Jesus' teachings with Socrates and the Buddhas. But sometime during or after the war, Gibbons' religious imagination bid farewell to traditional universalist canon. There's no better example of this than his 1947 sermon at the biannual meeting of the Universalist in Rochester, New York. Gibbons' appointment as Wausau's pastor arguably the most coveted pastor at then. Coupled with his story as a war veteran, former Manhattan lawyer turned clergyman had earned him immense respect. So when he took to the stage in Rochester to address the entire body of American Universalists, he was addressing an audience eager to hear what he had to say. And so within the movement, which was by then was going the way of the Unitarians in terms of regarding religion as an ethic, people were asking behind closed doors something that Gibbons was brave enough to finally ask in public. Quote, is universalism a Christian denomination or is it something more, a truly universal religion, end quote. Gibbons' sermon, New Wine and Old Skins, was a watershed in the history of universalism. He told his fellow universalists that, quote, this issue is the most vital universalism has ever faced, striking at the very base of its religious foundation for Christianity and this larger universalism are now irreconcilable. A momentous decision must be made and soon. Unless universalism stands for something distinctive and affirmative, it falls indistinguishable, negative, nothingness, neither loved nor hated, just ignored." End quote. As Charles Howe notes in his book on the history of American universalism, quote, Many in the Christian wing of the denomination were understandably upset by Gibbon's word, but this did not stand in, his, in way of his election to denominational leadership in the years that followed. First as president in 1951, then as general superintendent 
two years later. Gibbons would work simultaneously as Wausau's pastor and the denomination's president for, for two years before he resigned the pastorate in Wausau to take over as the UCA's general superintendent in 1953. So it's tempting to assign Gibbons the credit for articulating universalism's eventual transition from universalist Christianity to something totally distinctive and affirmative to use his own words. But he was aided by essentially the entire faculty of Crane Theological School at Tufts. He was also aided by a group called the Halumati, their name taken from the ancient Italian order that means the humble ones, though very few people thought that the members of the Halumati were humble at all. So the Hulumati was a theological blend. They were functional, naturalistic, theistic, and humanistic. And what they referred to their faith as is they called it universalized universalism. So this new universalized universalism, it rose to prominence when in 1947, one of its greatest champions, a guy by the name of Kenneth Patton, he was installed at the historic Charles Street Meeting House in Boston. As this was happening, many universalist pastors were also buddying up to their Unitarian counterparts who were also experimenting with universalized universalism. In fact, the first president of the UUA, Dana Greeley, who pastored the prestigious Arlington Street Church in Boston from 1935 to 1958, he had actually adopted his own take on universalized universalism. Gibbons was bold in his articulation for sure, but he had a lot of reinforcement. So Gibbons' ministry in Wausau is and was a success. Over the course of his pastorate that lasted just about 10 years, 342 families joined the church. 143 children were baptized. Gibbons' pastorate from 1942 to 53 is the peak of involvement when compared to any other era in the church's 152-year history. You can see photos of the sanctuary on Easter Sundays in those years, and what you'll see is very well-clad Wausau people sitting shoulder to shoulder. Gibbon's tenure as general and superintendent, it lasted three years. He, he experienced the, denomina the denomination's offices in Boston, much like he did the church in Wausau whenever he arrived. He called the denominational offices disorganized and financially mismanaged. And so after a formal assessment that he had ordered was submitted to him of the universalist accounts and policies, Gibbons became, quote, convinced that there were so many differences of polity and organization between universalists and Unitarians that the path for merger was no longer a workable plan for union. He urged either outright merger or total withdrawal and then submitted his resignation as superintendent. In 1970, Wausau's Universalists were celebrating the congregation's 100th anniversary. And so they decided to honor Gibbons by inviting him to lead that Sunday's worship service. And it was an absolutely grand occasion, complete with the publication of a book on the church's history and an entire week of festivities and guest lectures. Even a local television station was dispatched to broadcast the events. And so what Gibbons did is he used this honorable occasion to berate his former congregation in a sermon written from the perspective of a congregation of dead universalists. So the dead universalist, via Gibbons, offered Wausau's universalist these words, the voices of the dead, my friends. It is depressing to see the very essence of our enlightened and broader universalism sidetracked by our descendants. A raucous chorus bellows about orgiastic love 
what the world needs most and has plenty of, but hardly a whisper do we hear of our concept of spiritual love, which the world needs now more than ever and has very little of. Our freedom has denigrated into unbridled license to do one's own thing, and damn little is heard of our concern for what one ought to do with this freedom. Small wonder, as one living has noted, that your prisons are filled with individuals who enjoyed freedom without self-discipline." End quote. He went, on to shame, he went on to shame his view that today's Unitarian Universalists were nothing more than social action obsessors. He called the new generation's political involvement, quote, self-indulgent, and he guaranteed his former congregation that nothing they were doing would leave a lasting benefit to humanity. He said everything since the merger was futile and likened it to America's housing projects that he regarded as slums filled with irresponsible people. In closing, he had the ghosts say, quote, but let not social action remain the alpha and omega of your religion. Without a firm foundation, you are building a flimsy superstructure. Bring your endeavors into balance and revive our search for truth. The only way to discover a permanent cure for your sick and sorry and suffering humanity. End quote. When Gibbons returned home to Nantucket Island, where he was serving as an interim minister at the Second Congregational Meeting House, he gave a sermon on his time at Wausau that his daughter just bailed me a couple of years ago, and it reads almost like a confession. He entitled this sermon number 376, Travels in America, and a nod to John Steinbeck's 1962 travelogue, Travels with Charlie in Search of America. So in number 376, Gibbon says, quote, we spent, we spent a week there with friends, enjoying to exhaustion the overwhelming whining and dining so characteristic of Midwesterners participating in various events celebrating the 100th anniversary of the First Universalist Church, delivering the centennial sermon on October 25th, expressing a side of your minister I trust you may never have to see, a brutal critique of trends in our liberal religion, end quote an apology he never gave to Wausau. Wausau's universalists clearly were not disturbed by Gibbon's brutal critique because nine, year later, nine years later, in 1979, they named him Minister Emeritus. He traveled back to Wausau for the last time to accept the honor and preach a variation of his greatest hit, New Wine and Old Skins, thus reminding his former congregation of liberal religion's constant need to evolve in order to survive. Gibbon's critiques are worth consideration, but they inadequately acknowledge that the movement had evolved substantially since the merger 18 years earlier. It just didn't evolve the way Gibbons and others had hoped. There was, as Gibbon notes, a politicization of the movement that remains a source of tension today. What Gibbons was lamenting, as John Morgan observes in his book on universalism, was that, quote, the consolidation of the two movements in 1961 was in fact uneven. The much stronger Unitarian movement, it tended to dominate, and the Universalists were submerged, end quote. In that era, the rise of secular humanism made people who preferred the old Christian pietistic practices feel somewhat out of place. It's difficult to know what forms of politicization Gibbons took issue with. His critique also suggested discomfort with the emerging theology and the movement as well, but he runs out of time before the ghosts can tell us what's haunting them. 
There was immense political upheaval in the late 1950s and throughout the 1960s, and many Americans, the young especially, found themselves quite passionate about political causes. And within the American conscience, secular humanism had become commonplace, so much that by then you'd hear it on Sundays in many Universalist and Unitarian churches. A turn towards the political was certainly evident in Wausau's next pastorate, as was a more explicit articulation of practical religion alongside a version of secular humanism that in the end bid farewell to many aspects of theological universalism of any sort. The final minister we'll meet is Carlton, Fish Carlton Fisher who hailed from Brockton, Massachusetts and he had trained for the ministry He had trained for the ministry at St. Lawrence, like Gibbons and McLaughlin before him. By the time Fisher arrived in Wausau with his wife and three children, he had already enjoyed a sterling career. As America started preparations to enter the Second World War, Fisher was enjoying a successful pastorate at the First Universalist Church in Buffalo, New York. Leadership within the UCA tapped Fisher to lead the denomination service committee and war relief fund that was established in 1940 after the outbreak of hostilities in Europe. And so Fisher resigned his Buffalo pastorate in 1944 and started war relief work. Fisher developed a post-war relief and rehabilitation training program that he conducted out of the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. He later facilitated the cooperation of the Unitarian Service Committee to assist with the Universalist war relief efforts in France, Switzerland, and Japan. At war's end, the Universalist mission to Japan that started during McLaughlin's tenure at Wausau was nearly destroyed, and it would have remained destroyed if not for Fisher and the service committees. Before the Second World War, there were five churches in Tokyo and others in Shizuka, Nagoya, Osaka, Kyoto, and another 50 Universalist churches throughout Japan. But by the end of the war, nearly every piece of Universalist property was totally destroyed. Despite this, Fisher was determined to aid the Japanese Council of Universalists. Unfortunately, the seeds of a split were sown in 1940 after the Japanese Universalists formally cut ties with the UCA to merge its remaining congregations with the Congregational Churches of Japan, known as the Kumai. But Fisher pushed the, UC, the UCA to send them to Japan anyway, and in 1950 they agreed. Russell Miller details Fisher's meeting with the remnant Universalists in Japan, who explained to Fisher that, quote, the conflict of the Second World War had brought to an end the well-intentioned but somewhat old-fashioned and perfectly realized goal of converting Japanese people to Christianity, end quote. So Fisher worked tirelessly with Japan's Universalist communities to, to develop what they called the Order of the New Day, which, quote, called for both financial assistance and the exchange of personnel and ideas and a partnership rather than an imposition from the outside, benevolent as it might have been, end quote. Fisher and the Universalist Service Committee, alongside his Unitarian counterparts and the Japan Free Religious Association, were able to plan, fundraise, and construct two new Universalist churches in, to in Tokyo, as well as a public kindergarten and church school. Later, they built another church, as well as child care centers. Soon, Japanese students were studying for the ministry at St. Lawrence. Fisher's sensitive yet determined approach helped rebirth the Universalist movement in Japan, which still exists in parts of the country today. Fisher resigned his directorship of the service committee in 1953, 
and returned to parish work succeeding Givens at the First Universalist Church in Wausau. Fisher's tenure ministry was hectic and productive. Less than a year after Fisher arrived, he was publicly defending Universalism's reputation after a string of negative editorials critiquing the church appeared in newspapers. On August 2nd, 1954, the board took out ads in local publications countering the negative attitudes in the city, something McLaughlin had to do too 30 years earlier. The negative perceptions had very little impact. By the mid-1950s, the church school had outgrown the classrooms. If you read the board minutes then, what they contain are frequent complaints by the church school superintendents, Elnora Beekler, for instance, who all but commanded the board president, Jerry Visti, to confront the community groups that used the buildings, the Boy, Scouts, the Boy Scouts especially, who clearly enjoyed terrorizing the poor church school superintendent. The board understood the, the board understood that if they wanted to maintain success, that they'd have to find more space. So they voted to convert the church's parsonage to offices and classrooms, which required not only funds for a remodel, but also funds to secure temporary and later permanent housing for their pastor. Fisher's ministry in Wausau took on a multicultural and scientifically informed outreach approach in ways previously unseen. Of course, McLaughlin was heavily involved in the church's civic life as a speaker, lecturer, and musician, and Gibbons, upon returning from the Second World War, took to the pages of the Daily Record Herald, wherein he called on the people of Wausau to open their hearts to homeless veterans and their families. And Gibbons wasn't just playing lip service, as he and his wife had opened the doors of their home to several homeless servicemen. Gibbons' message to Wausau deployed a classic example of practical Christianity, sure to include Jesus' words, quote, For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, end quote. The citizens of Wausau took Gibbons' words to heart. Many residents opened their homes to help ensure a better future for America's homeless servicemen and women. Fisher's public ministries were drawn from a new vein, in 1961, together with the Board of Trustees in the UCA, Fisher developed a foreign exchange student program in Kenya, and in 1962 welcomed the first black person to the city. Richard Aguila lived with a church family while attending and later graduating from Wausau Senior High, where he was nominated by his fellow students as one of, as one of three area graduates for an award recognizing him as a model of the practice of human brotherhood. And Gillow was interviewed by the Daily Record Herald after accepting the award and told the reporter that he was humbled by the honor and was planning to return to Kenya and enter government work. Another significant achievement of Fisher's ministry occurred in 1956 when he and the board created a fund for people who couldn't afford psychiatric and counseling services. The charter read in part that the fund was inspired by the Universalist Church's belief, quote, in the supreme worth of every individual, end quote but much of Fisher's ministry at Wausau was focused on the merger. And from 1957 to 1961, Fisher had two full-time jobs, pastor at Wausau's Universalist Church and president of the UCA. He was traveling constantly for meetings with the leadership of the Universalist and Unitarians. And while in the pulpit, he preached a version of universalized universalism, but with significant interest in global affairs like the creation of the United Nations and the desegregation of American society. 
and when he wasn't preaching on current events, his sermons seemed to have had a psychological slant, showcasing sermons with titles like, quote, if you don't worry, you should, and the open and closed mind. Fisher did what he could to convince his congregation that merger with the Unitarians was part of their natural destiny. He called upon Unitarians like the Reverend Dr. Max Gabler, minister at the First Unitarian Society in Madison, whom he met while working in Japan. By the late 1950s, Gabler was already one of Madison's most famous residents, rising to prominence as a personal invitee of Pope John XXIII to attend the Second Vatican Council, and as a successful Unitarian ministry, minister who helped establish Unitarian churches in Japan, the Philippines, India, and Europe, and later developed close ties with Buddhists in Japan. Fisher and Gabler's efforts to convince Wausau's Universalists that merger was necessary was successful. On February 23, 1959, 59 of the church's 382 members participated in the vote, 54 in favor, four against. In the end, 36,864 Universalists joined 104,821 Unitarians in favor of the merger, thus creating the UUA. And even before the very first official meeting of the UUA could happen, there was already a list of 23 proposed changes to the Constitution, and there was heated debate over the use of association in the name. Universalists, by and large, wanted the title church and not association to uphold their Christian tradition. They also argued over whether a hyphen was needed to help them render the less awkward 15 syllables it took to say Unitarian Universalist Association. The Universalists were able to gather enough support to formally put to the floor that the association's name be changed to the Liberal Church of America, only to be voted down at the 1962 General Assembly. After the merger, Fisher would pour his energy into getting a Universalist elected as the first president of the UCA. Fisher's pick, a man named William Rice, was a constant in UCA affairs and had been in the Unitarian fold since 1945 when the Unitarian Church in Wellesley Hills, Massachusetts called the Universalist Rice as pastor. Rice would campaign against Dana Greeley, who had recently resigned his pastorate at, Barling at Boston's Arlington Street Church and was now serving as the AUA president. Rice would end up losing 980 to 1,135, fulfilling the fearful anticipation of many who thought that the Unitarians would overshadow the Universalists. Within a matter of years, Universalist seminaries were shuttered and their publications, but one, were all shut down. In the end, the Unitarians lost nothing. Back in Wausau, then president of the board, Edgar McEachran, did his best to assure his fellow congregants that they had cast the right vote. Quote, we in Wausau will still be members of the Universalist Church of Wausau. He went on saying, quote, no member of either church need agree with the beliefs of his pastor, and in many cases, the minister encourages differences of opinion, and he feels it is stimulating. I believe this merger will be successful and wholly satisfying to members of both churches, end quote. Here, McEachran is expressing his opinion, but it is informed by an almost textbook expression of the liberal church's commitment to the freedom of conscience for that of church members and for their pastors, a perennial source of pride and tension in our movement, especially in a world with such an abundant marketplace of ideas. After the merger, Fisher kept splitting his time between Boston and Wausau, serving 
on the UUA's executive committee and as vice moderator of the General Assembly. A year after the merger, Fisher altered the congregation's nearly 100-year-old liturgy, removing the Lord's Prayer and lessons from the Bible. He replaced them with readings that made no mention of salvation and grace or repentance and forgiveness. In its place, he used readings that described religion in practical terms as something that gives us joy and life and wonder and hope and purpose. Fisher had worked two full-time jobs for a decade, and I expect he was ready for a change. He submitted his resignation to Wasson headed east to Freeport, New York, where he pastored the South Nassau Unitarian Universalist Congregation, working often with the UUA to help integrate African Americans into the movement. Over the course of Fisher's time in Wausau, 129 people would join the church and 75 children would be baptized into the faith. In closing, 52 years ago, at the church's 100th anniversary, Gibbons closed his sermon with these words, quote, and with that, the voices of our universalist founders fade away, leaving much unsaid, probably in deference to our earthly limitations of time. And so I conclude as I opened with the obvious. Surely we must realize that ours is a glorious, unique heritage, oppressing upon us the sacred truth to justify it. So may the spiritual testament of our forebears aspire us to carry on in our time as nobly and fruitfully as those we commemorate did in their time, end quote. All of us are in the midst of earthly limitations of time. Universalists lifted from humankind the burden of fearing the hereafter. They assured you that an eternal rest surrounded by everyone you've ever loved and everyone who's ever loved you. And with that freedom, our founders trusted that in response, you would add to the measure of good in the world, that you would live with devotion towards your fellows, honor your commitments, acknowledge your weaknesses, share in successes, and walk humbly with your God. After all, they would say, you just might be entertaining angels unawares. <laughs>